As a believer, reading God's Word is a critical part of your daily spiritual journey. And because it's so important, we've created a unique new resource to help you immerse yourself in biblical truth and open your eyes to all God's Word has for you. It's a free PDF download called The Word One-to-One that takes you on a guided journey through John chapter 1. With biblical text and short commentary, each page provides insights that will strengthen your faith in an easy-to-read guided format. There's truly no other resource like this. Download your free PDF copy today at premierinsight.org forward slash resources. That's premierinsight.org forward slash resources. Ask NT Write Anything podcast. Well, hello and welcome once more to the show where I sit down with leading New Testament scholar Tom Wright and ask the questions that you put to him. And it's brought to you by Premier in partnership with SBCK and NT Write Online. And Tom Wright is research professor of New Testament and early Christianity at the University of St Andrews, a celebrated author and theologian, the former Bishop of Durham, of course. And I'm Justin Briley, theology and apologetics editor for Premier, and uh, get the privilege of every couple of weeks sitting down with Tom to ask him your questions. Now, as ever, we'd love more people to discover this new podcast. So do please rate and review us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Let others know about the show that way. And if you'd like more episodes, updates, or want to ask a question yourself, simply register at askntwrite.com. We've got some fantastic videos there as well now if you check out the videos tab. But there's a special bonus video only available to podcast subscribers who are registered with the website. Uh, askntwrite.com, you'll be sent the bonus material uh, that's available now. There's also still time to enter uh, to win one of three copies of Tom Wright's acclaimed book, Paul, a biography. Again, sign up at askntwrite.com before the end of December and you'll be entered into the prize draw and we'll announce the winners in January. Let's see what you wanted to ask Tom this week. Well, we're back together, Tom, for another edition of uh, our podcast as we look at some of the different themes that have been coming in on questions. Mm-hmm. Um, great to have you back. We're, you. we're not far out from Christmas now mm-hmm. um, and it did make me wonder... Are there any particularly um, highlights of Christmas that you always look forward to? I'm not talking specifically about the church services, but generally the, the whole atmosphere and yes, I mean Christmas has always been a, a rich family time, and for, for for me, both the family I grew up in and then having my own family, it's it's a wonderful time. And I think it's a, it's a cliche, but it remains the case that the the wonder of Christmas on the faces of little children is absolutely amazing. And now that I have grandchildren, <laughs> it's it's a really exciting yes. thing. And of course, one of the nice things about getting old is to have layer upon layer upon layer of memory which are then easily evoked by one line from a Christmas hymn mm. or one line from the Christmas story and 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 one of my favorite things as I, I love all kinds of music but um, Bach's Christmas Oratorio the opening of the Christmas Oratorio is one of the most amazing explosive moments in all classical music and just says something is happening as a result of which everything is different and you can feel it in the music and feel Bach's excitement and so a translate from 
the look of excitement and joy and surprise on my two-year-old grandson's face through to Bach saying, bum, ba 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 bum, bum. You know, it's wonderful <laughs> stuff. I love it. Um, it seemed appropriate with Christmas approaching to talk about the historical Jesus yes. and the Gospels. Um, we've had a lot of questions in on this, something you've obviously done a great sure. deal of work on yourself. Um, and uh, sticking with the Christmas theme, one thing I've often been asked by mm. sceptics um, who aren't convinced about the Gospels' historical mm. reliability mm. is um, how we should treat the birth narratives, right. particularly in uh, in Matthew and Luke, right. Um, right. shepherds, wise right. men, yeah. and yeah. so on. Yeah. Um, a lot of people claim that they were essentially invented after the yeah. fact yeah. Uh, yeah. as a sort of way of giving Jesus a sort of royal arrival on the scene, as right. it were. Right. What, what's your view on those kinds of criticisms? Yeah, I, let me just tell you a little story about that um, to show where our culture is sitting on that. Um, about 15, 20 years ago, I was phoned up shortly before Christmas by um, a television station saying they were putting together a program um, which was going to talk about the birth narratives and they wanted a New Testament specialist to come on and say actually probably that stuff never actually happened and this was just a researcher on the phone and I said supposing I was to come on and say um, actually there's quite a reasonable chance that it might have done and there was a pause and then she (laughs) said I don't think that's what my producer was looking for so I said thank you goodbye Um, but you know that's that's how our culture is slanted right now they don't want to hear that actually I'm an ancient historian I study texts in which uh, most of the incidents that we know about in the ancient world are described once and once only that's how you get from Tacitus or Suetonius or or, uh, any of the other great writers and even Josephus the great Jewish historian who tells the same story in the antiquities then he does the small version in the, the Jewish war and a bit of it as well in his autobiography quite often He's talking about things only once. That doesn't mean it didn't happen. And he is, of course, writing it all 20, 30 years later, some some case even more than that. But historians have to say, well, that's a bit of evidence. How do we weigh that? Mm-hmm. What's the probability? What's the likelihood, etc.? And uh, so the danger then is that some Christians say, well, because the Bible is inspired, we must believe that it all happened exactly as so. And I want to say, well, yes, I am happy to say that Mm -hmm. the Bible is the book that God has given us, and I live with that. But if I am making an argument um, to a fellow ancient historian who isn't a believer, I think I will say, well, you know perfectly well, there's lots of things Mm -hmm. that happened that you would write into your books, which are only in one in, in one story and may well have been written up a hundred years later. Um, so when we're talking about shepherds, well, yes, that's in principle probable, possible, mm-hmm. depending on what you think about angels. Likewise, when you're talking about wise men, depending on what you think about comets and so on. And, mm-hmm. and of course, there's been a lot of work done mm-hmm. on what star or comet it was and some quite interesting stuff. Mm-hmm. I haven't followed all the recent research mm-hmm. on that, but people have said you can actually pinpoint some things which might help you date right. when that's going on. So I want to say... Um, from the point of view of making a case to a non-believer, mm. I would say keep an open mind on that. Stuff happens. Right. Interesting, having slagged off one particular broadcaster, <laughs> the BBC some years ago did a Christmas thing. I think it was a six-part or something, uh, well, 20-minute or half-hour programs, where yes. they, they'd got the guy who did the script for EastEnders. That's right. And they, they gave him the Christmas mm. stories and mm. said, do it. It was spectacular. It was very good. And it was thoroughly believable. It made sense as a narrative. And I thought people need to see that because making sense is what history is supposed to do. 
Well, I know you've written uh, books on Advent and so on, so um, do go and check those out if you want to, some, some reading ahead of the Christmas season itself. But um, let's turn to some of the questions that have come in mm. uh, generally on the historical Jesus mm. and the Gospels, Tom. Um, here's one, and I'll ask you to be as brief as this person <laughs> asks you to be. Um, JD in Los Angeles says, what would you say is the most straightforward, succinct way to explain the historical accuracy of the Gospels? The answer is immerse yourself in the world of first century Jews, understand the pressures of Greek culture, of Roman Empire, of Jewish aspirations and hopes, get used to the language in which they framed those hopes, and then you will read a story of a young would-be prophet saying it's time for God to be king. And you say, yep, that's the kind of thing that would make sense in the late 20s, early 30s, um, under Herod, under uh, Tiberius Caesar, etc. Now, if that makes sense, what sort of sense does it make? What sort of redefinitions are going on? Is this what other people meant by God being king? And so on and so forth. And there's all sorts of things in the Gospels which really do make sense. And as I said before, that's what history is supposed to do. Now, again, if you're talking within the family of the church, then it's perfectly okay to say God intended us to have these texts. That doesn't mean that we necessarily know how best to read them, but it's a start. But if you're talking to people outside in the world, I want to say, no, this is public truth. We know just as well that Jesus of Nazareth went about saying it's time for God to become king and redefined that in terms of his own work. We know that just as well as we know that Julius Caesar was assassinated in 44 BC, as we know that Jerusalem was destroyed in AD 70. Um, And if somebody wants to be skeptical and say, actually, we don't know anything about anything that happened before about 1500, then, well, okay, you can pull the house down on top of you. The frequent objection I hear is, but these are sources that you claim are just as, you know, stand up just as well against other ancient historical sources, were written by people invested in this stuff, yes, were yes. written by the followers. So therefore, all, we can't trust them. All history is written by people who have agendas. There is no such <laughs> thing as a point of view, which is nobody's point of view. I tell the students, there is no such thing as an epistemological Switzerland. There is no neutral ground where you can stand from which you can declare that you're seeing everything clearly. I mean, David Hume, the great skeptic in the middle of the 18th century, he had massive agendas. Uh, Edward Gibbon, who wrote the decline and fall of the roman empire he had a huge agenda <clears throat> do we do we think that he is objective do we think that josephus the jewish historian is objective no he's got all kinds of stuff going on that doesn't mean that nothing happened right. i mean this is what i call critical realism which is uh, i use that phrase in a general sense and the way i define it is this yes fake news exists but that doesn't mean nothing happened on a related subject, Rob in Toronto, Canada, asks you and Bart Ehrman, another well-known uh, New Testament scholar, probably share the stage as the two most recognised names in New Testament studies. But clearly, you and he are on opposite ends of the theological spectrum. Um, while this may be a broad question, what's your response to Ehrman's assertion that there's very little we can say about the reliability of the New Testament in terms of knowing what the original manuscript said as Ehrman famously says all we have are copies of copies of copies etc which renders our ability to know what the original text says almost impossible one of the great things about having copies of copies of copies is that we've got hundreds thousands of manuscripts of the new testament almost all the other texts from the ancient world 
we know only through one or two medieval manuscripts. Lucretius, the great Epicurean poet from the first century BC, his work was lost completely, discovered in one manuscript in 1417 by Poggio Bracciolini, and that has revived Epicurean mm. studies. That one manuscript, excuse me, we've got all these manuscripts of the New Testament going way, way back, and the fact that we've got copies of copies of copies means that we can jolly well go back to a very solid basis, much more solid than for any other ancient texts, whether it's Homer and Virgil, whether it's Caesar and Cicero, whether it's Seneca or Suetonius. Not a problem, guys. Um, and I think Bart, actually, Bart Ehrman, would have to admit, yes, the New Testament text is pretty secure. Of mm. course, there are one or two passages where we say, not quite sure if this bit was originally part of the text or not. It may have come in, mm. somebody may have added a gloss, or somebody may have accidentally missed a bit out. All manuscripts are like that. When, when I write a book and somebody copy edits it, that, that happens now as yeah. well. doesn't it, mean it, I didn't write it. In my experience, having yeah. done a few of my unbelievable shows with, with Bart M as well, I was interested actually when I did sit down to debate this particular issue <laughs> with him uh, across with another mm -hmm. Bible scholar, that actually it turned out there were relatively few really contested yes. issues. Yes. And even in the ones where there were, it was contested whether Jesus felt pity or was angry yes, when yes, he yes, saw yes. such and such well Bart had an opinion on which it was he, yes, he felt yes. we could actually know yes which yes, it yes, was. yes yes so quite, so in a quite. sense it doesn't when you actually get down to brass tacks it doesn't quite seem as mis mystifying as, no, as, it's, as it's, it's not presented. nearly as much of a problem as people sometimes think. I think I mean I don't know Bart very well I've been on panels with him and debate, debated with him here and there and we once did a I think a podcast debate um, some years ago but um, he comes from as he says frequently a very 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 conservative Christian background which he, then, original background. which, which yeah. he then threw over mm. for whatever reason but in that very narrow restricted background it's basically all or nothing you either have every single syllable of the Bible is literally true or if the glass cracks the glass cracks mm. um, and it's like actually some very traditional Catholics who, if the Pope is wrong on one issue, he's quite possibly wrong on everything. Right. Um, now, I've never lived in that kind of, 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 of sharply defined, narrow world. I've never had to break out of it. Um, I have been able to make my way as a historian, as a believer, and to look at the texts and the big picture and, mm. and, and find, kind well, of find to, my way. To give him his due, I think Bart has told me in his own journey that he sort of went on a journey, yeah, which yeah. took him out of that and I think the thing that really took him away from faith altogether was eventually the problem of evil, and that perhaps is a different issue yes, altogether. Yes, well, uh, he, he and I debated that, um, ooh, 10 years ago, actually. Right. Um, oh, I day. remember you did it on the Pathios Network, I have a feeling. Quite possibly. Yes. It was in San Francisco, I right. know, which was an odd occasion. Yeah. Um, and it was actually quite difficult to debate him. Uh, debating Bart, um, you sort of make a point, and then he comes at you from a different angle. It's like it's like kicking a football against a haystack. It doesn't bounce back <laughs> the way you expected. But, uh. Well, I would be delighted to preside over any future... <laughs> discussions between you um let's um talk uh, about this question david in newcastle australia asks um skeptics of the authorship of the gospels claim that the four gospels were written after sometimes well after ad 70 but if this is the case why do the writers seem like they know nothing about the most momentous event for jews in the late first century the destruction of the temple um in ad 70 could the four gospels have all been written before ad 70 asks david uh, the answer is yes absolutely they could but we just don't know that i tell mm. my students that the four gospels all could be as late as the 80s or 90s i don't think they are they could be all as early as the, as the 50s or 60s i'm not sure they are mm. we just don't know over the last two centuries or so scholars have come up with all kinds of theories and usually the thing they peg them on is mark 13 matthew 24 luke 21 
which is the prediction of the destruction of Jerusalem, and they try to read echoes of that as though this is what in the trade we call Vaticania ex eventu, which is a prophecy written after the event. Okay. So, so this would be the, the yeah. view that those are there because they were in fact written after, yes, but they're written yes, as though yes, they're foretelling yes. it. Right? Interestingly, my friend, the late Marcus Borg, who disagreed with me about a lot of things, but he argued strongly on the basis of Luke 19 um, which is a, a shorter prediction of the destruction, that actually that must be a tradition which goes back behind AD 70, because when Jesus says your enemies will cast up a bank uh, um, uh, um, against you and leave not one stone upon another, etc., etc., that isn't actually how it happened. We know from Josephus, if you trust Josephus, that the way the Romans attacked was not what it says in Luke 19. Therefore, he says, this couldn't be written That's afterwards. So it must be before. So there's a lot of debates yes. like that. I mean, where would you, I mean, Mark is generally agreed to be the first and earliest um, gospel. Pr- probably 75, 80% of scholars would say that, yes. Mm. Uh, where would you sort of roughly date it if, I had, if, you, had, if you had to give a <laughs> It's curious. I was, just, I was just recently editing a, a volume that I and a colleague are doing, Introduction for Students, and my colleague had written up some of this stuff, and I was going through and said, actually, no, I'm not sure about that. <laughs> um, because the older I get, the more I think there are some things we really do know as ancient historians about this stuff and some mm. things we really don't know. Okay. And so I would be content to say if some new evidence turned up saying that Mark was written, say, in the early 60s um, and that Matthew and Luke were written in the later 60s, I would be slightly surprised but not particularly surprised. Mm-hmm. Um, James Crossley, interestingly, um, British, earlier. Uh, much mm-hmm. earlier mm-hmm. because he sees all that stuff about the destruction of the temple relating to what the Emperor Gaius was going to do back in the 40s. Mm. Um, Which now, is very early. It, yeah. it, it's very early, but in a sense, why not? Is right. there anything in the Gospels, which forces us to say no. And part of the problem here is the great tradition which has seen the Gospels as a more developed tradition, and particularly John as this wonderful high Christology. So, oh, that must be much later. To which the answer is no, sorry, John's Christology is no higher than Paul's. And Paul has already got it sussed by the late 40s. Ha, ha, there was tantalizing evidence we thought of possibly a manuscript that might be dated to within the first century and i think it was then um it was decided against in the end i can't remember oh, the, the specifics um, um, yeah th- this was about 10 or 15 years ago um uh, but does yeah. it make much difference kind of exactly how early the fragments are that we no, have of no. the manuscripts? No, i mean it, it is important because as i said in the answer to the previous question um if you're a classical scholar you're often working with medieval manuscripts and maybe one or two or three if you're lucky mm. If instead we've got lots and lots and lots of fragments from the 2nd and even more from the 3rd and even more from the 4th century, all converging on this explosive event that's happened, then, you know, this, this doesn't happen by accident. Going to take a quick pause here to remind you that the Ask MT Write Anything podcast is brought to you by Premier in partnership with SBCK and NT Write Online. Uh, SBCK is Tom's UK publisher. And uh, in honour of Tom Wright's 70th birthday, they've launched a special book specifically dedicated to him, which has contributions from other significant people in different fields. It's called One God, One People, One Future, Essays in Honour of NT Wright. And it's available now. In fact, the manuscript of this festrift of essays was presented to Tom by colleagues in a surprise ceremony at the Society for Biblical Literature's annual meeting uh, last month in Denver, Colorado. I know that uh, Tom was uh, very humbled to have received this honour. Uh, it is available now. You can check it out along with Tom's other books at SBCK Publishing. 
www.thepodcast.co.uk slash Tom hyphen right if you want to get taken straight to the page. Let's talk about um, the way the gospel writers put things across sometimes. Um, mm. How about this one uh, from Josh in San Antonio, Texas? Uh, how do you account for the different stories of the calling of Peter to ministry in the Gospels? Is it true that Jewish writers would change the details of stories they wrote down in order to make a bigger point? A scholar told me this, and it's been bothering me for some time. If this is true, how do we know what's quote-unquote true in a Western sense, each and every detail, and what's quote-unquote true in a Jewish sense, the broader meaning of the story? Perhaps you could just be- begin by outlining what the differences are in the stories of the calling of Peter in, in the <laughs> well, Gospels. Well, um, in, in Luke you have Jesus... Um, uh, doing this extraordinary thing, telling Peter to go and catch some fish. And Peter says, look, we've worked all night, hasn't mm. done anything. And then he says, depart from me because I'm a sinner. And Jesus is actually from now on, you'll be catching people. But then um, elsewhere, Jesus is um, walking by the lake and simply yes, calls Mark, them. It's simply um, yeah, calling yeah, yeah, yeah. James and John and Peter. And so That's on. right. Yeah. And, but then, of course, in John 21, when, um, again, Peter has gone fishing, then it's the risen Jesus who says, come and have breakfast. And then Simon, son of John, do you love me? And I have no problem saying that actually in real life, things may well happen in different Mm. um, sequences. What what strikes me about the question is this touchingly almost naive view, sorry to the question, I don't want to be rude, but that we in the West believe in unvarnished facts (laughs) and that other cultures um, select and arrange them. And as everyone knows who's ever seen anything in the newspaper that they actually know something about, the details are wrong. Yes. And likewise, I have taken part in various television news programs when I've been working in public life. And to watch how the editors will very carefully present a particular angle and very carefully screen out something else Mm. that might just tell Mm. a different story. Mm. I'm sorry, if we think that we know about unvarnished facts, then this is a modern bit of positivism that we have to repent of. This has come to me more forcefully, having had the experience of writing a book myself, in which I presented some um, conversations and dialogues I had with people. But I presented them for the sake of the way I wanted to make the points I wanted to make. And I realised as I was doing that, as I cut out some individuals who were present in the conversations and so on, oh, this is probably what the gospel writers were doing at various points. They had their own reasons for... for, I mean, John says says at the end, um, Jesus did many other things. And if you were to write them all down, (laughs) the world would explode. There wouldn't be enough room. And and, uh, this is one of the most basic points to get across to people um, because people speak as if the Gospels are the kind of transcript that you'd get if you'd had a video camera with with the camera rolling, a tape recorder going, and then every single thing gets written down. Well, Mm. sorry, no. Mm. Jesus spends a lot of time with the disciples, and most of the time I think he was not telling them parables. He'd probably say, oh, is it time for supper yet? Or, or, um, Mm. you know, you look a bit sick. Um, What can we do about that? Um, You know, there's a thousand different conversations which are not reported. And here's the thing. All of us, all the time, select and arrange. When I go home after this trip, I will sit down for supper with my wife and I will tell her something of what I've been doing. But I've been away for more than a week. If I were to tell her every single thing I'd done, she would be crushingly <laughs> bored um, and say, for goodness sake, get to the point. So I'd have to select and arrange, not in order to tell lies, but because that's what yes. we all have to do. Mm-hmm. And if you ever meet somebody who doesn't select and arrange, a young child just blabbing along or somebody who's, who's stoned out of their mind and just rambling, that's very tedious. So, for instance, the the critic who says, ah, but the Bible can't be true because 
in this particular gospel, you have Jesus in the temple doing his thing now and later on it's somewhere else. You're saying they, they just they're, they're treating it. Wrong, if anyone's wrong, bothered about this, I would say go to the Gospels and look at the story of Peter denying Jesus and the cock or the rooster, as the Americans call it, crowing. How often does that happen? And what is the precise sequence? Get mm. hold of Matthew, Mark, Luke and John and try and line it up. Mm. And as many people have shown, the only way you can make all those stories fit in the way they're told is by having the rooster or cock crowing nine times, which is what none of the narratives say. So in order to prove that they're all true, you have to prove that they're all false. And, and you know, this is a way of saying, lighten up, guys. We'll, um, we'll, we'll delve into this in yeah, another podcast okay. because I have got questions on your view on um, inerrancy and that sort oh, yeah, of okay, thing. So okay. we'll, we'll come to that another time. But, but mm-hmm. um, we'll, we'll put a pin in that for the moment. Sure. Um, okay, how about one last question uh, as we draw to the end of today's podcast? Thomas in Washington State number of questions from North America on today's show. Um, How do you visualize the ascension? Do you think Jesus actually floated up into the sky? Mm -hmm. That's a good question. And um, obviously this occurs at the end of Luke and the beginning of Acts. And for Paul and the others, they are taking... Uh, very often Psalm 110, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. And uh, they're taking um, Psalm 8, the Son of Man is now crowned with glory and honor with all things put in subjection under his feet. And I think they know perfectly well that these are earthly words about a heavenly reality, but more complicated about a heaven plus earth reality. That's the first thing I think to say about the ascension is that uh, for us, because we are innate Epicureans, that is to say we live in a worldview where heaven is a long way away, Mm. we imagine that if Jesus goes to heaven, he is not relating to us anymore. He's gone away and left us by ourselves. And the answer is no. In the biblical worldview, heaven and earth are meant to join together. And where heaven and earth join together is the temple. And to say that Jesus is now in heaven is to make a statement about the true temple being now Jesus' own human body. John says that. He spoke of the temple of his body. Then we say, well, okay, how does that work granted that heaven and earth are not fully joined together as they will one day be? And then we find that there are some passages in the New Testament which talk in a sort of upstairs-downstairs language and some which talk in a a secret and hidden but-to-be-revealed language so that, for instance, in 1 John 3, um, uh, he says, uh, when... Jesus appears, we will be like him, for we will see him as he is when he appears. Mm. And that appearing is as though he is present but behind a curtain, and one day the curtain will be drawn back, and we will realize he's been just there all along. And uh, Paul says the same in Colossians 3. Um, If you're raised with Christ, we are seated with him in the heavenly places. But when Christ, who is our life, appears, and it's as though for Paul— the heavenly places are not miles upstairs. So I think that the main thing is that we have to realize the last 300 years in Western culture, we have had an upstairs, downstairs, heaven and earth Mm. vision of how stuff works. So then back to the question. Mm. Um, And naturally, I do not know, but it seems to me the idea of a cloud receiving him, Mm. it's rather like the transfiguration where there was a cloud and a voice from the cloud. This is like the cloud and the fire in the in the wilderness. This is the living presence of God saying, this really is my son. He is now with me. 
And if that means that there is some vertical movement, then I've no problem with that. The danger is precisely because of our culture, we think, oh, so Jesus is some kind of weird spaceman. Mm. Um, and then, of course, that plays into the wrong view of the second coming as well, that Jesus is going to be floating downwards on a cloud. Mm. And I just think we have to lighten up about that, okay. um, including all those wonderful um, stained glass windows which have a cloud with two feet sticking down, you know. No, I don't think that's how it was. Actually. Okay. Thank you so much. If there's a book you would recommend people to dig into of your own or another person, if they want to look a bit more into the historical yeah, case for yeah, the Gospels yeah. and so Well, um, a few years ago, I wrote a book called Simply Jesus, yes. um, which uh, is kind of medium length and relatively easy, I think, but sends you back, of course, to my big one, Jesus and the Victory of God. But Simply Jesus is, is the recent one where I've tried to explore this. Great stuff. Thank you so much for being Thank with you. us on today's uh, podcast, Tom. I wish you a very happy Christmas Thank as you. well. And, and, um, and uh, I look forward to hearing uh, from you. If you've been listening and you'd like to uh, give us a thought, a comment or a question, uh, do make sure to get in touch with the show. You can do that the usual way via our webpage, askntright.com. Do make sure to register there for the newsletter and register so that you can ask your question or send us your comment. And we'll be back with you for another edition of the show next time. And registering at askntwrite.com also gets you bonus content and a chance to win one of three copies of Paul, a biography. Again, just sign up at askntwrite.com and go tell your friends about this podcast and about the cool stuff they can get if they sign up. We're taking a slightly longer break over Christmas, uh, back on the 1st of January with episode four, exploring your questions to Tom on mission and evangelism. Seems like a good theme for the new year. And back by popular demand, you'll also get some more of Tom Wright Unplugged in the next episode too. But we heard Tom uh, earlier on in the show describe one of his favourite Christmas moments, hearing those booming drums in Bach's Christmas Oratorio. So here's just a little of that piece to end today's show. And a very happy Christmas from both myself and Tom to all Ask N.T. Wright Anything listeners. been listening to the ask nt write anything podcast let other people know about this show by rating and reviewing it in your podcast provider for more podcasts from premier visit premier.org.uk slash podcasts